Welcome to the Brown County Hour. Coming to you from the legendary hills of Brown, where the plum purple haze, the one nature herself drapes over the hills and hollers, inspires local characters, artists, and nature lovers. It's as though the hills themselves conspire to create a beauty and culture in the heart of Indiana. Sit for a spell and hear the music. Tall tales. True stories. And current goings on. Brought to you by folks who still know how to sit by a fire in winter. And swim buck naked in summer. Welcome to episode 63 of the Brown County Hour. This is Dave Seastrom. And Carrie Ray, along with the rest of the crew. Our musical guest this month is Amanda Webb. She's just released her new CD, F4. We'll have a conversation with her, and we'll listen to a few of her new songs. We also have a conversation with Dietrich Gosser from the Brown County Inn, and with award-winning poet Nancy Chin Long, who will also share one of her poems. Our own Dave Seastrom has an essay about the forest, and we'll have an interview with Mike Kelly from the Stonehead Nature Preserve. Finally, we'll close the show by remembering our friend, Chris Curtin. In our first segment, we'll listen to our interview with Amanda Webb as she discusses her new CD, F4. We also have a conversation with Dietrich Gosser from the Brown County Inn, and we'll close with Amanda's tune, Heart to Hold On To. It's our pleasure to have Amanda Webb and Brian Webb in the studio this evening, and we are here talking about their brand new record, uh, album, whatever we call them these days. It's probably actually a CD, is that it's right? It's a CD. It's a digital download. It's a... And it's... I, still, I still use the term album because I think of an collection. album as a collection of things, yeah, so yeah. whatever medium you put it on, to yeah, me it's still album. an album. Yeah. It's yeah. a good collection. That's my holdout, yeah. Mm-hmm. So this is entitled F. Four, which is a tornado reference, and the band's name is the uh, Amanda Webb Band. So we've had you guys in before. It's good to see you again. Oh, good Thank to see you. Too. Yeah, then you want to start off by sharing a little bit of your musical background? Brian and I both started off at IU. We were uh, classical musicians, but we kind of took a tour off into Brown County and here we are doing blues and soul and a little jazz, and that Ooh. doesn't mean we never do yeah. the other stuff, but mostly now the band is comprised of original music and... Um, blues rock. Blues rock. So well, I know I have known of you really since moving here almost six years ago now. I've certainly heard of you and your music, and uh, I know over time that uh, you've performed in some different configurations. I'd love to hear a little bit about this current configuration, like how it came together and what your vision is about it. Actually, it's so funny you say that because when we first started playing um, in a band at all, I remember meeting you. It was one of those first Rally in the Alleys, and yeah. we saw Carrie there, and she was so fantastic, and we were just 
so excited to be on the same stage with Carrie. But uh, we didn't really know what we wanted to do at that point, and we played some Irish music, and then we played some cover tunes. We did some jazz stuff, just the two of us. And uh, over the course of the last couple of years, we've been finding our feet and trying some new things here and there. At the beginning of 2016, we started the Amanda Webb Band, and even through all of last year, we decided to to keep the name because we'd changed the name and probably had about five different bands in the course of the last three or four years figuring things out. And um, But we figured the one thing that stayed the same was me and then <laughs> Brian. And <laughs> so since he already gave me his name, which is Webb, I figured I'm allowed to have my name and his name on the album. And sure. <laughs> that's how we ended up with the band name. He's the Webb of life. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. Uh, and so we, we got um, Casey Simmons joined us at the beginning of 2016. Um, playing he plays drums, drums well, for us. He, no, he started playing bass with us. That's right. He started off as bass, and then he wanted to play drums, and we thought, okay, sure. And so he started playing drums, and we've had four or five different basses come through. Um, in this last configuration for the album, we had Derek Day play on bass, and Derek and Brian go way back to high sure. school together, and Derek works over at Primary Sound Studios in Bloomington. So mm-hmm. when he started playing with us, he's like, hey, we should record this album. You should come out to the studio. Well, the deal on that was is we were doing just a general jazz rock cover medley of all kinds of music. And every once in a while, right, we'd make her throw in an original tune. And Casey Simmons, he really pushed, no, we really like that. We want to get that on there. And so we sat down this fall and pushed out 10-song set um, and... And that's when Derek came on board, and we recorded it. And, yeah. it was, and, it, and then from that point, this year is, well, let's just try to push all the original music as hard as we can. It's, cool. been, it's been really good. So everything on this new um, album collection is original tunes. Yeah, it's all original tunes. It's and, the and first the album we've yes, ever done. Yeah. yeah, I wrote mm-hmm. them all. How many pieces are in the... Okay, well, we had four. We were doing a four-piece, and we now just decided to add a fifth rhythm guitar player because up to this point, I've played keys, and I've been... Um, shackled to the keyboard and haven't been able to get up and um, really perform to the crowd, which for me is the best thing ever. So I wanted to find a way to to release me from from being tied down there. So we had a rhythm guitarist come in for our CD release party that we did at the Red Barn um, at the beginning of April. It was such a fantastic show and we got such a great response from the audience and I had the best time ever. We decided we were going to make that a permanent fixture. So we try so, to stick with it. If we can do five pieces, we will. Yeah. Um, just so we can have more freedom to move around more. Sure. Yeah, my, I, I guess my other question is, especially folks like yourselves who come from such a diverse classical music background, when you decide to shift over from, okay, I'm a musician, which that sort of is defined by, I play this instrument or these instruments, and then you make this decision to sort of become an artist. And it's like folks expect an artist to have sort of a brand and a sound and a vibe, and you've named sort of the genre that you feel like you're playing in. Was that just a product of that just happened to be the original vibe that you went with when you wrote, or how was that decision made, or was it even (laughs) made? Well, I, I would comment it was kind of a morph because I would say you were very folky in your artistic approach to things, and, and when you would add different people into the mix, it would just take a new form. I would probably push more toward the blues rock, and she would be more articulate with 
with her chord structures and, and her lyrics, and it just kind of... I've got a great story that really right. illustrates what Brian's talking about. So one of the pieces on the album is called Heart to Hold On To, and we uh, sat down one night, and I was playing this tune for the guys, and it was this just slow, mournful tune about this is the heart to hold on to. And I looked up afterwards, I'm looking at them, and they're just completely nonplussed. They're bored out of their skulls. And I'm like, okay, this that's not a good one. We just won't do that one on the album. And um, at that point, uh, Derek looks at me and he's like, you know what I'm hearing? I'm hearing some social distortion. Okay. <laughs> Being, you know, like a punk rock band from the 80s, social distortion. And I'm right. laughing and being the smart ass that I am. I'm like, right, Derek, uh, I so get that. You mean like this? And so we just slam into this piece and rock it out and completely change it. And, and so that just to be, yeah. right, just to be a smart ass. And we get done and I'm like, oh my gosh, that is awesome. We're going to keep it. Let's just right. do it. So on the album, that's what ended up happening. That tune was completely flipped on its head and yeah, became a, something else entirely. So you're involved in the Nashville Pavilion Music Series. When, tell us about that and, and when will you be performing? Yes, we're going to do a show on the Pavilion Green on June 17th. It's a free show. Everybody should come out and hear us because that's our only local show in June. So if we want to follow your career, do you have a website or a Facebook page? Thank you for asking. We do. We have a great Facebook page, Amanda Webb Band. So we'll post a lot there and do new music posts and videos there. But also we're on YouTube as Amanda Webb Band, and we're going to be posting a lot of new videos there. And we have our website, amandawebbband.com. If you just want a central point to look at stuff and see our calendar and what's coming up, you can go to there. Thank you guys so much for coming in. I can't wait to hear the music. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. It's uh, my pleasure to introduce Dietrich Gosser, who is the chef at the Brown County Inn and co-owner, along with his family. And we're talking about farm to table, which is one of their things. And we're also talking about their expanded interest in local music and how this relates to local foods, including the farmer's market that they're just beginning to sponsor. So welcome to the studio, Dietrich. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Let's talk a, a little bit about this concept of farm to table. Farm to Table is like a food movement that's been popular in a lot of places. I mean, it's, you know, the foundation of food in America, and uh, there are a lot of chefs and uh, restaurants who are trying to move back towards something that's just a little bit more sustainable, where you're buying from local purveyors, local growers, uh, local meat producers, and pushing the food that people used to make for themselves giving them a venue to have that in front of them again in the restaurant. And it's something that at Brown County Inn, you know, we're taking baby steps. We're new owners in the community, and uh, we've taken some time to grow into our role here. And something like Farm to Table is an aspiration of ours. We buy more local than we used to, but it's not, we're not fully there yet. Well, it's interesting that this has become a movement, and you know, I applaud it because the quality of the food will be better. You're supporting the local community. But uh, as you pointed out, I mean, this was the entire world not too long ago. Right. And now now it's coming back to life again, which is a direct response to, what, canned, trucked-in food? or I, I think that 
It is. It must be a response to that. You know, people have had lower quality food, you know, more processed. And I think that there's a breaking point at some point where you have to just sort of look at what you're consuming and think about who you're paying for all of your products. You know, the, the more that like we can keep the money in our community, the stronger our community is going to be. So it's not it's not that the food has to be fancier, but it's about making the right choices for everybody along the food chain. You know, whether it's like, why do I need to buy beef from Montana when there's so many people that are producing like quality beef here? Exactly. And when you're buying on a smaller scale like that, then you you get to buy heritage breeds that like haven't been bred out of like all of the characteristics of flavor that uh, was why we started eating those animals in the first place. And so most of our food, I can't say that all of our meat comes from them, but we're working with Fisher Farms in Jasper and buying most of our beef and pork through them. And that's been a great relationship. And like I said, we're, we're fairly new to the community, and I'm just looking to meet more people in the food community and have an opportunity to do business with them and just get that in front of our customers. Well, along with that, you guys are hosting the uh, newly created Nashville Farmer's Market. Yes, it's very exciting. Uh, we, we just had our the first farmer's market this last week, and uh, it was an excellent turnout. And I think that it's amazing to, like, once again, it's like to meet more growers, you know, getting a chance to, to go to a farmer's market, which I, like, since we've started here, I haven't had the opportunity to do. And to, to have it right there is amazing. And to be able to meet farmers that I haven't met before and be able to buy from them directly is fantastic. And we're, we're, we'll be doing that. We'll be buying things from the farmer's market and putting them on specials that same day and throughout the week. Now, this takes place on Sunday. What are the hours? Uh, Sunday from 12 p.m. until 3 p.m. Okay. And that will be every Sunday through the season. Every Sunday through October. Okay. Well, uh, let's get back to your idea of expanding uh, the Brown County Inn as a venue for local music. It's always had a certain amount of local music, but it sounds like you have a greater commitment to increase that. As a musician myself, I'm really engaged and want to become engaged in the music community here. And I think that we offer music every Friday and Saturday night, which tends to be a lot of cover bands, and they're always great, and they bring a lot of support, and they're just amazing. And like some of them are great songwriters themselves, but a lot of our clientele are looking for things that they're a little more familiar with. And I'd like to be able to create uh, an avenue there where their own music is celebrated a little bit more. And so I'd like to create another night or two of music, that kind of thing. Uh, partnering with the Indiana Fingerstyle Guitar Competition, you know, like is yes. an amazing thing. Like that was awesome. We had a ukulele fest there this January, which was just an incredible turnout. Yeah. And I think something that we could really grow. And I think that there's just, we have some room there to... I don't know, to just be a, a viable venue for people, you know, not just to bring business in for ourselves, which is definitely part of it, but also to just give a place for, you know, live music to thrive. We had the the Pickers who every Tuesday evening were out of the pavilion during the winter months this year. They were in one of our dining rooms, and that was an amazing relationship to have that happening. Uh, it's just an open jam session that happens for a few hours each night, and uh, that was awesome, and we'd love to have them back next winter. And Well, it's really exciting to see new blood come into the county with such enthusiasm and great ideas. Do you all have a website? You can check out browncountyn.com. Uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, there's all great ways to keep up on what's happening at Brown County Inn, food-wise and music-wise. So you guys are wired. Yeah, we're, we're trying. Excellent. Yeah.
Thank you so much, Dietrich Gosser, for coming in and sharing your story with us. We really appreciate it, and I look forward to coming to many events at the Brown County Inn. Thanks, Dave. It's It's great to be here.
we pause for station identification. You are listening to the Brown County Hour on Volunteer Powered Community Radio, WFHB, at 100.7 in Brown County, 91.3 and 98.1 in Bloomington, 106.3 at Ellettsville, and online at WFHB.org. Support for the Brown County Hour comes from the Indiana State Fingerstyle Guitar Festival at the Brown County Playhouse. Featuring award-winning acoustic guitarists from all over the world on July 28th and 29th. Tickets and information available at indianastringfest.com. Segment two begins with our interview with award-winning poet Nancy Chen Long, and we'll listen to her poem entitled, How She First Discovered Sex. Dave Seastrom has an essay about the forest, and we'll listen to Amanda Webb's song, Long Pour. This is Pam Rader for the Brown County Hour and Dave, Dave Seastrom. We're here tonight interviewing a local writer who won the National Fellowship grant in poetry. This is Nancy Chen Long. Hi, Nancy. Hello. Yeah, welcome to the studio. Thank you. Now, a little aside, Nancy and I were in a group many, many years ago. My recollection of that is that you were just starting to write poetry. Mm -hmm. And don't you have a really left-brain job? Yeah, I work in uh, Indiana University in high-performance systems, and I work with their computers. So I help researchers apply computer technology to their research. So and my undergraduate degree is in engineering. Maybe it's a life balancer to then be totally into this uh, flowing experience of poetry. Uh-huh. Well, when I was younger, I wanted to write, and I thought I would be practical. And so when I was in high school, I thought, what's practical with writing? And I thought, journalism. That, I'll be a journalist. And uh, I talked uh, to some people about it and was told that uh, female journalists were a dime a dozen and I should go into something like um, science or engineering. Mm -hmm. So after some hiccups with some life events, I eventually ended up in, uh, in engineering. So none of those people had actually heard of Nina Totenberg then or any of the other great female journalists. Yeah, probably not. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they're lost. Yes. So and you actually did write poetry, though, as a child. Yes, I think lots of kids, you know, end up writing poetry and writing little stories. I would even make my own books, you know, and um, give them the numbers because I saw numbers at the library, so I'd give them my own numbering system. So there's the left brain for you. I gave them my own numbering system. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I, I wrote poetry and I wrote little stories and, you know, what kids do, colored, made pictures for them and stuff. So, so this is kind of like a, um, a, a life achievement grant in a way. I mean, so you're allowed mm. to use this money to further your career? Yes. And you're going to go around and do poetry readings and travel the country? Right. I wanted to, I was going to use it, um, I'm going to use part of it for my second manuscript to do some research uh, and to get some away time. When you work full time, I think everybody knows that when you're doing your day job making money, you need to get away from it to do something else. And so I'm going to use part of it, hopefully, to take a sabbatical, maybe, for two weeks or four weeks or something like that to write. But then, yes, since I have a book coming out, it's also going to help me do some readings. I plan on taking my little, I bought a little small sound system, just one speaker, and you can, it actually has a battery so that you 
can charge it so you can just pull it around and it has a handle and my little bag or a box of books and I'm going to go through like 11 southern cities, just me and my van and my sound system and my books. Cool. And so, and that's wow. for October. So I plan on doing that. That sounds like a lot of fun, actually. So you have a book that's already come out. Yes. And tell us a little about that. So it's my first manuscript. I started writing uh, poetry accidentally. There was a local massage therapist in Bloomington, and I was bemoaning and complaining to her, and she so suggested that I take up writing again, and she suggested I go to a, a woman's writing group uh, circle. And I went, and instead of doing like journaling or what, what they were doing, I started writing poetry again. It started coming out in poetry. And so that was about 2005 or 2006. And it was like I was overtaken by it. And so I went for an MFA and I got an MFA during that time. It had to be a brief residency. Do you Have you heard of brief residency MFAs? Instead of going and doing like a traditional school, you meet maybe twice a year for a week or two weeks on campus. And it's really intense. It's like from 8 o'clock in the morning to like 9 o'clock at night. You do events and, and do lectures and stuff. But then for the six months between, you're actually at home and you're in correspondence with a, a professor. And so I was able to do that and work at the same time. But anyway, so I got my MFA from Spalding University, and out of it came my book, Light Into Bodies, which won the 2016 um, Tampa Review, which is a, a journal uh, out of the University of Tampa, Tampa Review Prize for Poetry. That, that's incredible. So your very first work wins an award. That must yeah. feel good. That's like encouraging. A surprise. The, the uh, National Endowment of the Arts was a total surprise, and this was a surprise as well. So yes, uh, I have one book out that just came out. Well, the official launch is actually May 20th, but I had my first pre-launch reading yesterday in Indianapolis. So I had my first reading ever for my first book. So will there be a signing event? I'm, there's going to be a, an official launch May 20th at Crazy Horse, but I don't plan on reading. I have It's a celebration, so I'm having people that help me along the way. I want to celebrate and lift up their work, so they're going to be there. And a couple of friends are going to spend maybe 15, 20 minutes and play some music, a jazz guitarist um, and a bass player. But there will be a book signing to answer your question in a long-winded way, yes. How can we get a copy of this book? The editor right now is, and uh, the publisher, they're working to get it up on their website, but they don't have it up yet. But within the next several weeks, there should be a link up at the University of Tampa Press with a, a link to, to the book. Would you have copies at, like, our local bookstore? I plan to ask Good. whether they actually take it or not. I don't know, but I'll be asking. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So did you have to apply for the NEA grant? Yes. And what inspired you to do that? A mentor suggested that I apply for the NEA grant, like all writers, but the main reason was to keep me engaged in publishing because you have to qualify in order to even submit an application. And that way, a lot of times, if you're not, writing is, is very um, isolated and you can get, it's easy to get discouraged. But if you're publishing, uh, or you're trying to publish, in my case, trying to publish, then you send out work and you write new work and you send out work and then hopefully you'll get published and that allows you to uh, apply for the grant. So she did, She suggested it as a way to keep me motivated or keep anyone motivated and engaged in the writing process and not to fall out like some of us tend to do. And so this was the second time I'd applied. Uh, usually I was expecting to do it for the rest of my life like lots of people mm -hmm. do, that sort of thing. And out of, out of nowhere, I get this phone call 
with cell phones now, I don't answer it unless I know who the person is because it's usually someone trying to sell me diabetes uh, strips or something. You know, right. it's, it's, it's a if I don't know the number, I don't usually the know the person. The inheritance you didn't know about. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so I didn't answer the phone, and I get this email from the NEA saying, we're trying to call you, please answer your phone. And I had thought I had done something wrong on my application, and the powers that be were going to be generous with me and allow me to correct it. And I thought, well, this is great. And uh, so he's talking to me, and I didn't believe him because he asked me for my social security number, and that's a wrong thing right there. He said I had won the grant, and I was really you know, excited and actually, unlike right now, tongue-tied. And uh, But when he asked me for my social security number, I started to think this is a scam. Mm. It didn't really happen. Uh, but we worked through that. Uh, they needed. They needed for. They needed for their papers uh, and stuff like that. No, no, really. We're going to give you twenty five thousand dollars. <laughs> yeah. No, really. <laughs> so anyway, um, that's how that happened. It was a. It was a, really a surprise. So well, do do you have uh, a website? Or? Yes, I do. I have an author website. Uh, www.nancychenlong.com. So it's after my name. Good, and yes. so we can follow the progress on your next manuscript and when that comes out. Yes, you're very generous. I hope there is progress. Please let there be progress. <laughs> Nancy, thank you so much for coming in and sharing your story. This has been great. Nancy Chen Long, How She First Discovered Sex. Only grown-ups can do it. Kids aren't allowed. Even in second grade, she understood there were things her parents couldn't tell her until she was older. But it was Saturday night, and again there were giggles and rustling noises coming from her parents' bedroom. And there was that light streaming from under their door where she lay on the linoleum floor, peering through the crack. She couldn't see a thing. So she slid the door open just a sliver. And what did she see? Candy wrappers strewn all about the bed, her mom and dad propped up against pillows, chuckling and munching, reading the Sunday funny papers. It was quite a coup to get a hold of the Sunday funnies on a Saturday, thanks to the neighbor, a newspaper man, who came by every evening with the next day's copy. The same neighbor who got her dad a job at the local tire factory. Seeing her at the door, her mom patted the bed. Hop on up, sweetie. And she did, snuggled in between her parents as they read the funnies to her, shared almond joys, licorice twists, tootsie rolls. So this is sex, she thought, eating candy in bed, one of those fun things only grown-ups are allowed to do. It turned into a ritual every Saturday night until eating candy in bed became known as Saturday night, her favorite. Sky bars, four squares of chocolate, each with a different gooey center. She liked the busyness inside of the chocolate. And of course, bit o' honey. Do you want some Saturday night, her mom would ask, as she broke open a bag of fine confections. Lately, I've been spending more time hiking in the woods. Mostly I'm doing this for the exercise, but I have other reasons as well. The forest next to our house is almost 100 years old. This dates back to the great clear-cut that decimated all of the forests in Brown County. And the trees we're seeing now grew up from the seeds from that once mighty forest. 
There are hundreds of miles of trails in Brown County, and many of those miles are in the state park, but most of them are in unprotected state forests. For those of us who love this experience, we're in a sad time of transition, and if we want to experience hiking on these trails, time is running out. Whether you agree with the new strategic forest plan or not, when it's completed, the beautiful hiking trails that have taken years to build will be permanently altered, and the majestic forest that surrounds them will be, for the most part, gone. In place of these once beautiful trails, there will be 30-foot-wide gravel roads, and the intimate nature of the once simple and attractive hiking trails will take on a decidedly more industrial look. The history of these trails is worth telling. It's probable that many of them go back to a time before settlement and were used by Native Americans as they traveled across Indiana. There are another group of trails that connected the old homesteads to each other, and many of these trails evolved into the county roads that we use today. After the clear-cut, those homesteads were abandoned and melted back into the earth. Eventually, the only evidence we see of their existence today are the flowers that the women planted. In 1995, the Hoosier Hikers Council was established to make and maintain hiking trails in Indiana. This group is comprised entirely of volunteers. They meet once a month, and using only manual labor, they make the hiking trails that we see today. I've lived in Brown County for 40 years, and during that time I've seen a lot of logging. Under the old plan, 17% of the new growth was cut in a process known as selective logging. A group of men would show up in pickup trucks and cut the selected trees with chainsaws. Then they would attach cables to individual logs that were hauled out by machines called skidders. The logs were hauled on the hiking trails and the surrounding forest floor was respected. In a surprisingly short time, the forest recovered and the hiking trails returned to what they were before the logging took place. It's important to note that this type of management was in place from the first timber sales in the 1960s until a little more than 12 years ago. At that time, a completely different management approach was adapted, and now we're seeing a 400% increase in the rate of logging. Three years ago, this coming fall, the track to the east of our land was logged, and I was shocked by the changes in how timber is harvested now. Numbers and statistics are all well and good, but in simple terms, the forest is now harvested in a series of clear cuts by giant machines called feller bunchers that resemble something out of Star Wars. When the trees are cut, the ones that are harvested are grouped together by a skidding machine with a giant articulating arm that can haul many trees at a time. The trees they don't want, or cull trees, are pushed to the side in huge piles and left to rot, which returns an enormous amount of carbon to the atmosphere. In a final insult to the forest, bulldozers scrape the forest floor clean, which wipes out the ephemeral plants and leaves this topsoil bleeding into the environment. After all of this work is finished, they come in and build 30-foot-wide gravel roads that obliterate the old hiking trails. The tract of state forest to the west of our property is, as of now, intact, and that's where I've been hiking. It's a lovely trail that follows a series of ridge tops that wind slowly to the south from our place. There are many young and old trees of mixed species, and the forest floor is alive with countless ephemeral plants and mushrooms of many different types. I've been hiking this trail for a long time, and I know many of these trees as old friends. 
I'm always glad to see them, but these days it's with a bit of melancholy, because I know their fate. If I'm ambitious, I'll hike to an area that overlooks Low Gap Road that has an outcropping of marine fossils. This is the only area of its type I've ever found on a ridgetop. These ancient plants speak of a time when the area was covered by a shallow sea millions of years ago, and soon they and the forests that surround them will be lost. This is heartbreaking to me, and in response, I've joined with a group of conservationists in an attempt to do something about this situation. If you would like to know more, please go to our website, forestwatch.com, for further information. Meanwhile, I'm going to spend as much time hiking these beautiful old-growth forest trails as I can. And if you share this interest, I recommend that you do the same before this opportunity is lost for the next several generations. This is Dave Seastrom. See you next time. Crazy, a town gonna seem Just to get you to listen to me Relentless, that's what I'm gonna be Just to get you hear me I've got to get your attention I need intervention gotta have your love and affection and leave until I get what I came for what you wanna call me and I'll wait for your crumbs to fall free I've gotta get your attention I need intervention gotta have your love and affection and live until I get what I came for
now we pause for station identification. You are listening to the Brown County Hour on Volunteer Powered Community Radio, WFHB, at 100.7 in Brown County, 91.3 and 98.1 in Bloomington, 106.3 at Ellettsville, and online at WFHB.org. Support for the Brown County Hour comes from the Indiana State Fingerstyle Guitar Festival at the Brown County Playhouse. Featuring award-winning acoustic guitarists from all over the world on July 28th and 29th. Tickets and information available at indianastringfest.com. Our final segment begins with Mike Kelly from the Stonehead Nature Preserve. Dave Seastrom presents a eulogy for our friend and contributor, Chris Curtin. And we will listen to one of his poems. We'll close the show with Amanda Webb tune called Sailing. It's my pleasure to introduce Mike Kelly, who is the director. Is that correct? Well, uh, I, I kind of started the, the whole nature Founding preserve father. thing. Owner. Yeah. yeah but right, right now I'm board of the directors of the Stonehead Conservancy and, uh, you know, the board of directors there. So, uh, mm-hmm. uh, But I, I started the whole thing. And, uh, you know, and when, I, we, when we talk about the whole thing, we're talking about the Stonehead Nature Preserve and the Stonehead Conservancy and the Zimmerman Wetland. Well, yeah, they're... they're uh, two separate ent- entities, the Stonehead Nature Preserve and then the Stonehead Conservancy is the managing body. It's the okay. group of people that oversee it. Uh, the Zimmerman Wetland Bird Habitat is strictly a part of this total 122 acres, but it's a uh, designated part north of Salt Creek. Okay. So I did a, a wetland restoration there about 10 years ago, and uh, we now have six ponded areas as a result of putting in some levees and working with the Army Corps engineers and Department of Natural Resources and people like that. So they oversee the construction of it. And uh, uh, it became a favorite um, birding habitat for a, a group of people. And uh, we've done surveys there now for, uh, you know, once a month for about the last eight years. So are you attracting all kinds of species of birds? That well, more not... species than would be there otherwise. I right. mean, it, it used to be a farm field, and then uh, more recently it was a, a cattle field. I think it was basically too wet to grow things. I mean, they tiled it like all the farmers do in the valley, but it was uh, particularly wet in some areas. And, and I uh, said something to it when I w- had to have a new septic system put in there at the house at Stonehead, uh, adjacent to it, and... Uh, <laughs> It was, uh, what was his name? Donaldson, Al Donaldson. He did a wetland area up at his place, and he said, well, have you ever thought about doing a wetland area since it's so wet here anyway? And I was always a nature buff, so, uh, yeah, I I immediately started. uh, Once that was done, I put in some uh, walking paths, hiking paths, and uh, I I mow them and try to keep them groomed. And uh, I'd I'd like to think that uh, the nature preserve is a little more of a boutique nature preserve than other ones. I mean, a lot of them don't have adequate parking or access. This one has decent parking. It has wonderful access, especially in the wetland area. Put artwork in there. Try to patronize local artists. Try to do things to make it just a little cut above uh, what you might normally see at a nature preserve. Well, I think most people in Brown County know exactly where you are because of the Henry Cross sculpture of Stonehead, which sadly has lost its head. 
Well, let me say that there's no truth to the rumor that uh, it's now called the Stoneheadless Nature Preserve. <laughs> it's still going to be Stonehead because the spirit of Stonehead lives. So I actually put up a sign on, on the house there that, uh, you know, said the spirit of Stonehead lives. And uh, we, we have a, I did a little piece of artwork there in the window. So Stonehead is looking down on the uh, monument there. I haven't seen it since it's been vandalized. I, I hear it was actually pretty brutalized. Well, you know, I'm surprised at the number of people. They'll say, uh, you know, it's been stolen four or five times in the past and always comes back. It'll come back someday. But, you know, it hasn't been stolen since, I think, like the early 1970s, and it was gone for four years. And uh, back then, two guys that lived up in Indianapolis, they just picked it up and uh, carted it off. Right, they, they removed the entire sculpture. Yeah, they took the whole thing. So right. as a result, Alice Lorenz... Fred Lorenz, their yeah. family, they uh, had this duplicate one made that now is in the History Center here. Mm -hmm. But I'm always surprised that so many people think that, well, the one that got damaged was a duplicate, the original spirit. <laughs> and I, no, I said, no, it's the other way around because uh -huh. uh, after being missing for close to four years, you know, they commissioned an artist to uh, do a likeness of it. It almost would make more sense to have the duplicate out there where people could Well, have in hindsight, to, yes. Yeah. I mean, I always had that fear that uh, something might happen to it like that, especially as, you know, Stonehead area in general got more notoriety, and uh, there's a nice coffee table book put out that has a, you know, it's called Weird Indiana, but it has yeah. a Stonehead on the cover of that book. And uh, I thought, you know, the more famous that place gets, the uh, more likely that something might happen to it. And everybody has their theories, and uh, believe me, I've heard them all because yeah. that's the, the number one question that I get now when I run well, into people. Well, they actually chopped the head off. Yeah, somehow. It wasn't a nice clean cut, and yeah. I assume maybe it was something like a sledgehammer. It might have been a 10-pound hammer, but... Uh, well, I I'd, uh, I told you I had that fear that something like that might happen someday, and I thought about, uh, you know, maybe me personally making one in its likeness because, uh, I mean... Who better knows the dimensions of it? And I'd probably have more photographs of that thing than anybody. But I thought I'd, you know, I'd have one in waiting in case it did disappear that uh, you know, wouldn't miss a beat. We'll see what happens. But I'd like to stay positive about it and think that it's going to come back someday. And uh, who knows, you know. Uh, hmm. So you have an event coming up yes, in it, June. It's going to be our fourth annual Nature Awareness Weekend. And it's our means of community outreach. And what all goes on? on well, that? we have two days of events. It's mm -hmm. it's traditionally always starts with the Charles E. Russell Beginner's Bird Hike. Now, Charlie Russell was a zoology teacher of mine uh, when I was at North Central High School. Uh -huh. And he, uh, he was a bird nut, so to speak, but he got people interested in bird watching. And he would, every spring, he'd have two or three weekend bus trips to various places. I would do that, and uh, I took a personal shining to uh, bird watching. Uh, as, as an honor to him, I named this uh, bird hike uh -huh. after him. And so it's June 10th and it's 11th. It's June 10th on, on, and the 11th. Mm -hmm. uh, starts out at 8 o'clock with the, our beginner bird hike on uh, Saturday. But then 10:30 uh, we're going to have uh, Jillian Harris is going to talk on tree identification. Tentatively we're going to have a presentation on dragonflies. We're going to have a creek watch uh, down in Salt Creek where they actually test the water and they look at different uh, creatures underneath the rocks mm -hmm. and it's really geared toward kids but you know kids of all ages but uh, kids really <laughs> seem to enjoy it. And the it. kid in yeah, us. Yeah and that's going to be by <laughs> Sandy Belt and uh, Rosemary Sour. Mm -hmm. And then uh, this year for the first time we're going to have a nighttime event and this is going to be Jeff Keller who's going to do amphibians 
So those of you who had a chance to uh, hear him recently, you'll get a chance to see him uh, firsthand. He's quite an interesting guy and always uh, gives a nice presentation for people. But uh, mm -hmm. that'll be a nighttime thing. And then Sunday, uh, we're going to have a more advanced bird hike. Now, this one's going to be a little bit easier. It's for the early birds. Uh, it's going to be at 7 o'clock, but uh, Jim and Susan Hengevelt... IU biology professors, they're going to lead that bird mm -hmm. hike. And this is a little more serious. I mean, they're actually going to be doing a survey, but uh, so, some people might prefer uh, that over the beginner's hike. And uh, we're, we're going to have another uh, Just for Kids bird identification thing. It's just a fun game thing that uh, Sandy Belt does for the kids, and mm -hmm. she'll have different stages stages set up around the uh, property for uh, kids to get involved. And then uh, we're going to have a butterfly event in uh, on Sunday afternoon. And uh, we're working on getting a, uh, an event on mosses and ferns. So it's a full two days, but very enjoyable. And even if you don't, uh, don't care about what uh, something is, you know, what, how to identify things, uh, you can still come out and just relax and uh, bring a sack lunch and hike around and just enjoy the day. There'll be a lot of camaraderie there. And uh, we have a lot of lawn chairs there, but you might want to bring your own just in case. So it's not a thing you sign up for? No. Okay. You just show up, and it gets a little bit bigger mm -hmm. each year. So we're hoping for good weather. Like everything, it's weather-dependent, but uh, mm -hmm. it'll go on rain or shine. And you have a website. We have a Facebook page, uh, Stonehead Conservancy. And then the uh, website is Stonehead Conservancy, all one word, stoneheadconservancy.wordpress.com. So you can go to those and uh, see our various mm -hmm. events that we have throughout the year. And we always have a uh, membership meeting uh, the third weekend in uh, September. A lot, of, a lot of other things during the year, too. So and, are people allowed to come out there on their own? Absolutely. wander around? Yeah, oh, so, so some people always ask, well, do I need to call ahead of time? But, oh, no. I mean, even mm -hmm. when it was uh, privately owned, I, I always encouraged my friends to come out. And uh, through word of mouth, it was nice to see more and more people come out. Mm -hmm. but, uh, well, I'm intrigued that you acquired this property yeah. and you discovered that the one thing that it might be ideal for was becoming a wetland, and then you made it happen. Yeah, I did. I, I had an uncle uh, who had 40 acres near Decatur, Indiana. He put little mowed paths throughout his field there, and I remember hiking there. I thought, boy, this is nice. I'd love to have something like this. And so uh, I, I had planned since day one to, uh, you know, have a nature preserve. So it, it's been a long process, but I sure have enjoyed doing it. Well, what an excellent example of having a dream and going through everything that it takes to get there and achieving it. Yeah. Well, I, I feel lucky that uh, I live adjacent to it uh, and see it every day. And, uh, and, and so I think niche preserves like this are going to get more and more valuable through the years. Yeah, I agree. And one of the things, I, I do not want to ever see it logged. I'm real sensitive to uh, logging because all my neighbors have logged and things. But uh, I, I want to preserve these trees, uh, and, and so that's in, that's in the you know the bylaws and all that. That the trees will never mm -hmm. be cut. Well, yes. Mike, thank you so much for coming oh, in sure. and sharing this information with us. I'm sad to report that our friend and longtime contributor Chris Curtin passed away a few weeks ago. This is heartbreaking news for all of us here at the Brown County Hour, and I'm sure for many of our listeners who enjoyed his poems and short stories. Our hearts go out to Chris's many friends and especially his family in this sad time. Chris looked at the world with a keen eye for observation and a wry sense of humor that left many of us laughing out loud. He had a way of taking the simplest topic and turning it into something profound. 
His smooth delivery mixed in with his clever voice inflections added a depth to his work that many of us only wish we could accomplish. We are fortunate to have several of Chris's poems in our archives, and it's our privilege to share one with you now. Thank you, Chris, for all your work. We'll never forget you. Here is a timely poem Chris recorded during the elections called Electile Dysfunction. This is Chris Curtin with a story called The Right Stuff. With a presidential campaign looming formidably on the horizon like a mushroom cloud, many of us are understandably anxious and fearful that we may fall victim to the ultimate equipment failure dreaded by men everywhere. Yes, I'm talking about ED, electile dysfunction, the complete inability to perform satisfactorily your duties as a citizen and consummate your obligations as a voter. Warning, if you're exposed to a politician for more than four hours, you should consult a physician immediately, preferably a specialist in plain English and a doctor of common sense. While I can't explain the physics of it in layman's terms, it has something to do with the gusts of hot air emanating from the political windbags filling all the available oxygen with wild accusations, overblown rhetoric, and empty promises, coupled with the resulting drop in barometric pressure, which in turn causes whatever little cloud of integrity happens to be floating around in the air to be sucked out of the atmosphere and into another solar system gone forever. This election campaign, we will enjoy the privilege of selecting from a dozen or so candidates from the two parties. Lobbyists are lined up with suitcases full of cash, private jets, and wild women with very low standards who are willing to spend their time listening to these gas bags prattle on, endlessly pontificating on every issue their speechwriters tell them they firmly believe in with every fiber of their being at this moment in time, until those speechwriters tell them they believe in something else with every fiber of their being. Eventually, the politician suffers from fiber overload. As a result, he cannot remember anything that he believes in. I myself am considering running for political office. All my life, I have heard that politicians are shiftless and lazy and never do any real work. I believe that this would suit me to a T, but I do have some questions. I am lazy, I won't argue with that, but I'm not sure about shiftlessness. What is shift? Is shift everywhere you look, or is it a rare quality possessed only by a few very special persons? Is there good shift and bad shift? Is one person's shift better than another's? What exactly is the meaning of shiftless? Is it to be lacking or totally out of shift? If so, then I'm afraid I wouldn't measure up. I'm most certainly not shiftless. Friends and family alike often tell me that I'm completely full of shift. So I believe that it is best if I put my political career on hold until I am sure that I'm made of the right stuff. I tried to save what couldn't be saved A broken ship on the horizon I sailed out there in my pain and kept it company 
water plane I couldn't say would won't be saved I know that I can't walk on water this vessel keeps me from the deep I wrestle with the waves and fall Spirit calms me when I sleep The sky turns black, it pours out rain I can't change What won't be changed On and on I go and say Changing of the water I'm tethered to the ebb and flow I dive deep into your mystery But I come back every time I don't understand your Thanks for tuning in to episode 63 of the Brown County Hour, recorded in our studio at the History Center here in downtown Nashville, and brought to you the first Sunday of every month at 9 a.m. and at our new time the following Wednesday at 5.30 p.m. The Brown County Hour is brought to you by a diverse group of folks who believe now more than ever that the world is for everyone. This show was produced by Chuck Wills, Pam Rader, Rick Fettig, Vera Grubbs, Carrie Ray, and Dave Seastrom. We would also like to thank Slats Klug for our theme music. You have been listening to the Brown County Hour. Coming to you from deep in the woods of Brown County, Indiana. Celebrating the arts, culture, and nature that make this such a unique community. Visit us online at browncountyhour.com. The Brown County Hour is a production of WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported community radio for South Central Indiana. Take me back, back to my home, Brown County home.